Hey, Miles, you ready to dive into Fall of the Mutants? Yeah, but there's something bugging me. Neil Conan's a pretty big deal in this story. True. Only he's actually a real guy, right? He totally is. He's a radio journalist. He's also a macadamia nut farmer, which is less directly relevant, but still a cool bit of trivia. Huh. How do you end up in Uncanny X-Men? Well, how does anyone end up in X-Men, Miles? How did we end up in X-Men? He was friends with the writer, in this case, Chris Claremont. Conan has shown up in some of Claremont's other stuff, too. Fantastic Four, Sovereign Seven. Sovereign Seven? It's a creator-owned DC series. Conan almost didn't make it into that one, though. Apparently, there was a whole kerfluffle with DC's legal department about whether he could appear in the book at all. Because of likeness rights? Well, because they couldn't decide whether he counted as a Marvel character or a real person. What?! J. Rachel Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 86 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. Okay, so we are at one of the big ones. We are beginning at long last, the second X-Men crossover ever, Fall of the Mutants. And not only is this an X-Men crossover, but this is actually going to be a three-part series on the show. This week, we're going to be covering the X-Men chunk of that crossover. Next week, we'll be looking at the new mutants. And then finally, in episode 88, we're going to be wrapping up with X-Factor. And so we should talk a little bit about how this crossover works, because kind of like the Mutant Massacre, it's not a traditional crossover as we know them today, but it's also not like the Mutant Massacre was done. It's sort of its own thing. Well, it strikes me as less of a crossover than just a line-wide theme. I mean, the stories don't actually overlap very much. You see tiny threads of them in one another, but mostly it's just a period when a lot of bad stuff happened in the X-Line all at once. This story, as do many others, begins with money. Basically, the Mutant Massacre did really well. A lot of people bought it. Marvel made a ton of money on it. And Jim Shooter looked at this and went to uh, Louis Simonson and Chris Claremont and said, guys, we got to do another crossover. We got to do one now. This is a gold mine. This is brilliant. Let's get to work. Now, Claremont and Simonson were still burned out from the Mutant Massacre. They hadn't really thought about this before, but they didn't want Jim Shooter to just tell them what to do. They didn't want him to provide the concept and make them write it. Basically, they didn't want another Secret Wars 2. Well, I don't know if it was that specific. Nobody wants but... another Secret Wars 2. And so they said, yeah, sure, Jim, we're actually already like halfway through writing it. No worries. We'll have something solid for you soon. And he said, great. At which point they went away and backed their offices and went, oh shit, we have to come up with a crossover. And so they came up with Fall of the Mutants. And basically, this had been led up to for a long time, and we're going to get to some of the story behind Fall of the Mutants and what it might have been later. But, you know, we'd had the pieces in place for this sort of thing for a long time. I mean, you know, Naze, who we'll be talking about, had been introduced like 40-something issues ago. You know, it's interesting you bring up Naze because he was the adversary, because the adversary wasn't actually the original antagonist they'd planned for this crossover. And we're going to talk about that more once we've looked at the story. For now, I guess let's go back more to the background and the context around the fall of the mutants as it was in production and coming out. Like we were talking about, it's not exactly a traditional crossover. So we have three issues each, complete with the title of the crossover on the cover of New Mutants, X-Factor, and X-Men, and three pretty much entirely unrelated stories. I mean, they refer to each other. There are references to the different stories in each of the books, but they don't really touch each other more than in passing. You know what it actually reminds me of? What's that? Disassembled. Avengers Disassembled? I can see that because, yeah, there was one sort of big inciting event in the Avengers book, but there was a lot of independent solo stuff going on in the other individual characters' titles. Right, like, for instance, the Thor Disassembled story really has very, very little to do with the main plot line, except that, again, it's, you know, Thor Disassembled. 
Fall of the Mutants feels a lot like that. Again, it's more of a thematically linked than narratively linked event. Yeah. And as for X-Men, it's actually strangely structured as well. So a lot of the time you'll see when there's a big climactic story going on, the last issue will be like double-sized or extra-sized or whatever. And we do have a double-sized issue within this event, but it's actually the middle of the three issues. And you know, I actually really like that. I think making the second act the biggest and the most involved and the longest really works for this particular story. It doesn't for everything. I mean, for example, the Dark Phoenix Saga 137 has to be the double long issue. Here, though, the bulk of the actual plot takes place in the middle. The last issue, the climax, the big final fall and rebirth of the X-Men is almost an epilogue. I would agree, yeah. And the first issue is really just setting everything up, just setting up the stakes of everything, the scope and the scale of everything. Right. And one of the things that that longer second issue does is just build the stakes and the anticipation. It gives us a sense of sort of the desperate grind that the X-Men are in at this point in the story. Now, speaking of building anticipation, there was one little detail I wanted to make sure we mentioned, which was the marketing campaign for Fall of the Mutants that Marvel put out. Oh, man, which is so good. And you've seen this around. It gets repurposed for everything. Like, there is no comics related website, podcast, or project that has not used some kind of mashup or spin on this. Yeah. So Marvel gave out a bunch of postcards and printed in their issues as well. This graphic with these pictures of these four children, the one on the far right being Franklin Richards in his power pack tattletale costume with the caption, it's 1987. Do you know what your children are? Paid for by citizens in support of the Mutant Registration Act. So, kind of cool. I always love in-world artifacts like that, and this is one of the earliest X-Men ones that I know of. There was also other tie-in stuff. I think there was a video game that came out around the same time or slightly after. It's 1989, Uh, so slightly after. It was a DOS game, the overhead play where you had to fight your way through Freedom Force before getting to the adversary. And I should say, like most X-Men games, it was not how you say good. Maybe one day we'll see a truly awesome X-Men game. I'm sort of a fan of the arcade game myself, although it doesn't really capture the subtle nuance and uh, narrative of Claremont's run or any others, but still you get to punch Sentinel, so that's cool. I just really like co-op side-scrolling beat-em-ups. Me too. So anyway, all of that build-up aside, let's talk a little bit about the position the X-Men find themselves in at the beginning of The Fall of the Mutants. All right, now the X-Men are still in a state of flux. Almost half the team has been sidelined by the Mutant Massacre. Shadowcat, Nightcrawler, and Colossus are all still recovering on Muir Island. We've got some new members, too. Psylocke is now on the team. Dazzler is back. Longshot has recently joined, and Havoc has once again returned. The veterans are Rogue and the acting team leader, Wolverine. Storm was the previous leader, but she has gone off to find Forge and try to get her powers back. Now, speaking of Storm losing her powers and trying to get them back, so ages and ages ago, in episode number a long time ago, Storm was shot by a gun Forge developed that was intended to depower Rogue, who was a criminal, by some government agents. So Storm lost her powers, and she's been without her powers for a very, very, very long time. This has been a very significant arc. Storm and Forge also had a briefly kindling romance shortly after she lost her powers, but before she found out that he was the one indirectly responsible. Since then, Forge has at least apparently kind of gone off the deep end. Storm went to find him in hopes of getting her powers back and discovered his penthouse completely wrecked. This weird, almost museum of twisted nostalgia to the two of them. Yeah. What she also found was a guy named Naze, who is Forge's old mentor, who's very into sort of mystical stuff. Well... She found someone who appeared to be a guy named Naze, because the last time we saw Naze, which was again at the end of the life-death story, he was possessed by something called the Adversary. Let's talk about that guy. 
So we only know a bit about what the adversary's deal is at this point. What we do know is that he slash it is incredibly powerful. Essentially, the adversary is a Native American chaos god who's responsible for ending and rebirthing the world periodically in this sort of cycle of creation and destruction. He doesn't have a single direct mythic antecedent that I've been able to find, but he's very much in the vein and tradition of all-powerful creator trickster deities. He's one of the almost fundamental forces of the world and as such is just supremely and phenomenally powerful. And one of the things that we learned last time we checked in with these guys is that Forge has spent a good deal of his life being groomed for and trained to eventually take on and defeat the adversary. Exactly. Now, Forge, as we've learned in Life Death, pretty soundly rejected any kind of magic and mysticism after something bad that went down in Vietnam that involved magic and demons and something. At this point in the story, we don't know a lot of the details of just what the deal with that was, other than that Forge is now a man purely of technology, not at all of mysticism. Now, the adversary, in the guise of Naze, managed to convince Storm that Forge had gone evil, that he was trying to throw the world into chaos, and that the only way for her to stop him was to kill him, which she tried to do. As she discovered shortly after stabbing him, he'd been trying to do the exact opposite. He'd been trying to stop the adversary. And her action had basically guaranteed that he couldn't, throwing the world into chaos. That brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 225 and a very, very different sort of cosmic figure of the Marvel Universe. That is Roma. Okay, so let's talk about Roma. She is not just a type of tomato. She is, in fact, a cosmic being from Captain Britain. She's the daughter of Merlin. Yes, that Merlin. And the Guardian of the Omniverse, which is, in fact, as awesome as it sounds. While the adversary is a force of chaos, Roma is predominantly a force of order, or at least nominally a force of order. The image that's most strongly and continually associated with her, the one that's been significant, I think, previously in Captain Britain and is going to very, very much be part of an ongoing motif in Excalibur, is a chessboard. Specifically, a chessboard with the pieces as the significant players and characters in the massive world-spanning and multiverse-spanning dramas that are playing out. You just got a Cyclops chess piece. Are you planning on one of these as well? No, no, I just thought it was a cool figurine. Okay, I'm just saying. I am am really uh, bad at chess. Yeah, me too. Well, I guess we're probably for the best. We're not Omniversal Guardians. I would like to get better at it. I've played very, very little. That's fair. So, yes, we start out this arc. Well, technically, we start out this arc in Scotland, but we'll get to that later. But after that, we start out this arc in the Starlight Citadel in the Omniverse, which is where Roma hangs out. Starlight Citadel really sounds like an 80s dance club. I would hang out there. I would wear all of my neon. I wonder if Roma wears all of her neon when we're not looking. Could be. She can if she wants to. I mean, who's going to stop her? Well, one person who might stop her is, in fact, the adversary. Now, the adversary has completely abandoned the Naze persona at this point, since it has served its purpose in getting Storm to stab Forge and get sucked into a hole in the sky. More on that later. And he currently is in control of the Starlight Citadel, and Roma is sort of not exactly tied to a column within it, but merged with a column within it, like when Shadowcat phases through something partially, but she's stuck. The adversary is at this point very, very much playing himself as the Joker to Roma's Batman. He is the force of, you know, chaos and improvisation. She's the force of order and how far out she's planned will be her downfall, blah, 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 etc. And this is fun. This fascinates me. And again, we're going to get back to this more when we go back to find out more about how this starts. But to me, Roma is less about order than the pretense of order. You know, she has a chessboard set up, but as we're going to learn, she does not play by standard rules. In fact, she doesn't really play by any rules other than the ones that she determines. Exactly. So the adversary is mocking Roma. Everything looks like it's going to be terrible. The last time we saw Storm and Forge, they were sucked into the sky. The X-Men, in the meantime, have gone off to find Storm. 
They know that she's somewhere in Dallas. They know she was heading to Forge's Airy and Eagle Plaza. So that's where they start. And they know that something really bad is waiting for them in Dallas. Because Destiny, who's one of Rogue's moms, looks into Rogue's future every once in a while just to make sure things are going okay or will be going okay. And the last time she did, she saw nothing. She saw death and absolute oblivion. She warned Mystique, Rogue's other mom, who came to warn Rogue that if the X-Men went to Dallas, they were going to die. And the X-Men basically looked at each other and were like, well, goes with the job and headed off to Dallas. Alongside them at this point, and we didn't mention her when we were going through the team, is also Madeline Pryor. Quick refresher, Madeline Pryor is Cyclops's estranged wife. Maddie was almost killed and was kidnapped by the Marauders. At the same time, as far as anyone knows, their infant son was either kidnapped or killed. There's been no sign of him since. Turns out it's way more complicated than that. Yeah, she's eventually going to turn out to be a clone of Jean Grey, but we're not going to get there for a really, really long time. For now, she's basically just badass as hell, and we love her a lot. Yes, we do. Oh, and she's sort of involved in a semi-quasi-pre-romance with Havoc, because it wasn't awkward enough already. So yeah, the X-Men are here in Dallas at Eagle Plaza, and they see that it's trash. They see the same thing the Storm saw when she got there. So they go to check it out, and it doesn't go well. Not only do the defenses kick in and kick their ass, but Freedom Force, the former Brotherhood of Evil Mutants who are now working for the government, show up to stop them too. Hey, 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 they are not just the former Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. They have three new members, remember? The Murder Grandpas are on they Freedom Force now too. They have the Murder Grandpas. Yes, they have Crimson Commando, Super Saber, and Stonewall. And these are three World War II era heroes whom we first encountered when they were um, hunting humans for sport in the Adirondacks. Yes. The other members we have who uh, had nothing to do with hunting humans for sport that we know of are Mystique, their leader, Destiny, her lover, Avalanche, Pyro, and the Blob. I think it's reasonably fair to assume that Mystique has hunted humans for sport at some point. She probably has. We also have Spiral, who is a six-armed woman who is very complicated and is from Longshot and has a complicated history with him, but mainly right now just talks funny and uses magic. She is from the Mojoverse, which we went into in, at much more length in the episode where we covered Longshot. Like Madeline Pryor, she is later going to be subject to a significant retcon where she will turn out to have been Ricochet Rita. There's A lot of stuff that you can read in retrospect is foreshadowing that here, where she and Longshot sort of recognize each other and have something going on. Apparently, none of that was actually intentional. They were just teasing at the fact that they came from the same world. Right. And man, I love stuff like that. That's one of the things I love about comics in general and X-Men in particular. With retcons, with, you know, retroactive continuity, you can go and read dialogue that was never intended a certain way as being much more full of meaning. And I think that's something Claremont especially was excellent at. Well, it's a marvelous, marvelous thought experiment. It's the no prize thing or storytelling, but it's taking elements that weren't deliberate and finding order in them, creating a pattern. I mean, humans look for patterns. This is what we do. There's something called pareidolia, which is, you know, the tendency to see things like the Virgin Mary in a piece of toast or whatever. But it's something that our brains are very, very, very much hardwired for. And applying that to narrative cohesion is something that never stops fascinating me, and it never stops being really fun. Totally. So Freedom Force confronts the X-Men, and Mystique is very upfront about the fact that, yes, we are partially here to arrest you for violating the Mutant Registration Act, but we're partially here to arrest you just to make sure that you, more specifically Rogue, don't die in Dallas. I really love the way Mystique and Rogue's relationship is written throughout this. Mystique is not a good parent. Mystique is a really, really bad parent. But she's a parent whose feelings and concern for her kid are also very genuine and very, very fundamental to who she is and to their relationship. And there's a certain intense, dysfunctional, and very, very real family dynamic there 
that I love, and I mean that Claremont, I was going to say Claremont Nails, that Claremont created. So obviously he's got really right here, but that I never, never don't like to see. Absolutely. So, of course, there is a big fight because that's what happens when there's any sort of disagreement in a comic book for the most part. And we won't go into too much detail, but I will say there are a few elements that are kind of rad. So, for instance, I really enjoy when the blob jumps up in the air and just sits on Wolverine for a while. A few minutes later, he flies up into the air again with Wolverine's claws sticking straight up. I like that element because it's very much like Looney Tunes injected into this very serious story. Like, it's totally a Saturday morning cartoon fight. If there's one thing that Deadpool actually has shown us, it's that healing factors and cartoon logic lend themselves to each other very, very well. They really do. We also see Crimson Commando, one of the murder grandpas, whose powers have been very ill-defined at this point, sneaking up on Psylocke and knocking her out. And his explanation here is that he can empty his mind while his body acts, which makes no sense and I love. I'm trying to think of how that exactly works. And I mean, I, I know what he's trying to describe, sort of the super focused, you know, mind empty Zen state, but... I'm imagining more that it's just like he stops thinking, like it's nothing but, I don't know, Jonas Brothers lyrics. Oh man, he's just wandering around the battlefield, like watching YouTube on his smartphone, just bumping into people occasionally, and then just randomly wanders into Psylocke and knocks her out. All Psylocke sees is this sort of cluster of lolcats. Wow, what a way to go. So things are not going well for the X-Men. Freedom Force is pretty well kicking their asses. Or at least they are until a teleportation circle appears, and Colossus drops out of the sky to kick ass and take names. Now, this is a big deal, because we haven't seen Colossus in a very, very long time. The last time we saw him, he was paralyzed. He was stuck in his metal form, and he couldn't move after Magneto tried to magnetically heal him of the wounds he received in the Mutant Massacre. So, how's it going, Piotr? Yeah, how did Colossus get here? How Colossus got here was actually talked a little bit about at the beginning of the first issue, which we haven't talked about yet. He'd been hanging out in Edinburgh in Scotland, just trying to recover in his human form because shifting back and forth was almost impossible and very agonizing for him at and this he was, point. He was no longer paralyzed. Colossus is an artist and he was just wandering around Edinburgh sketching. And in the process of a complicated and difficult day involving, you know, a conflict with a group of scrappy young kids who complain about how the X-Men are all girls these days in what I assume must be a tongue-in-cheek jab at the readership. Oh, that had to be, yeah. He ends up drawing an attractive young woman who he's talking to who offers to read his palm. What she reads is, I think it's supposed to be oddly specific, but it really, it's so vague. It's the Barnum effect. I mean, that's how psychics pretty much work, right? There's much more to you, my friend, than meets the eye. A strength to your soul that complements the strength of your body. Pain of heart and spirit to match the wounds of the flesh. Love's lost, honor found. A reverence for life, tempered twice by the necessity of taking a life. Okay, that's pretty specific. That is pretty specific. That's referring, by the way, to Proteus a long time ago and Riptide, one of the marauders from the mutant massacre. And then she disappears when he demands answers, leaving only a chess piece sculpture of Colossus in his armored form. And when he looks down at the sketch in his sketchbook, it looks nothing like the woman he saw. It's someone else who he doesn't recognize at all, but who we, the readers, if we have been following Marvel UK, which I'm going to say that we fictionally have at that point in 1987, will recognize as Roma. Yeah, so he's just sitting here with this uh, metallic dude chess piece, which is kind of weird. I mean, this whole thing has been weird, but I think that's the weirdest part. Right, that she's just carrying around a chess piece of him? Yeah, like, why did you have that, lady? It's a metaphor. The chess piece is a metaphor. That is also a real chess piece. Yes. Oh, like the space cat. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, uh, after the kids continue to be jerks and throw a firecracker at him, which, wow, kids, causing him to shift into his metal form. Kids he's are feeling, terrible. They are terrible. 
he's feeling both pretty down and like things are maybe not so okay, like maybe strange things are afoot at the Scottish Circle K. We're dropping the illusions fast and furious here. Of course we are. So he decides to head to a payphone and call home to call his sister at the Xavier School. Unfortunately, he's currently stuck in his metal form. It's really hard for him to transform back and forth, and he just smashes through the buttons. He eventually makes it work, though, and Ilyana shows up in one of her teleportation circles, making reference to being in the midst of the whole bird boy thing over in New Mutants, and takes him to Dallas, which is where we find him now. So it's a damn good thing that Colossus shows up when he does, because this is where everything goes to hell. A great tear opens up in the sky, pouring light into Night Dark Dallas. And I want to talk a little bit here about Mark Silvestri's art, because I feel like Silvestri doesn't get a lot of credit for his very long run on X-Men. I mean, everyone talks about, you know, John Byrne or Bill Sienkiewicz or some of the other very recognizable artists who have made their mark on the X-Franchise. And Silvestri, you know, he's not as distinct as, say, Sienkiewicz, I mean, who is, but he is a damn serviceable artist. And I think that's especially evident in The Fall of the Mutants on the Uncanny X-Men side. The expressive faces he draws, the backgrounds and cityscapes he draws, his backgrounds aren't always the most detailed, but they're always very deliberately chosen, and it works so well. Silvestri is incredibly, incredibly good, especially during this era, at grounding characters in their locations. And that's very important because setting is now and is going to become even more so a really key element of X-Men and a really, really important aspect of that. The relationship of the X-Men to their environment is going to become a key central, maybe the central component of their story for a pretty long time coming out of this. And Silvestri nails it. There's a lot that I don't love about him. For example, he has one female body that he draws. And it's exaggerated in slightly frustrating ways. He's really, I mean, actually, his guys are kind of homogenous, too. That's something I'm not super fond of. I like being able to, at a glance, visually distinguish between characters, even from a distance. Yeah, he's very expressive. He draws fantastic, really, really, really dynamic big fights, too, which is, again, very important with a team this size. Speaking of big fights, the X-Men and Freedom Force are at an impasse in theirs. The X-Men have captured Mystique and Freedom Force, have captured Psylocke, Dazzler, and Rogue, all of whom are unconscious. Spiral is just being kind of a mean, mystical person. Destiny, who's still freaking out about everyone being about to die, has discarded her sort of golden, featureless face mask, and Spiral just stabs it into Dazzler's face when Dazzler tries to escape. Yeah, it's kind of intense. Like, she just straight up, like, stabs Dazzler in the head. And, you know, it's magic, so Dazzler's not dead or anything, but she sure does have a giant gold mask on her face and can't see a damn thing. And this was always one of the most memorable, weird images from Fall of the Mutants for me. It kind of is referenced again. I mean, I guess it's a symbol that even though X-Men and Freedom Force are going to be working together later, there's still this animosity they can't get rid of. But mainly, it's just Dazzler running around with a mask and a dagger in her face. Yeah, she spends the rest of the event running around like this with this thing just fucking nailed to her head. I know it's supposed to be unsettling, but it's just really silly. Yeah. Yeah, it's just kind of goofy once you realize that there's not actually a knife through her forebrain. And speaking of that mask, the reason that it is, you know, available to be stabbed onto someone's face is that Destiny has discarded it. Destiny is just freaking the hell out. She can see the future and all she sees in it is inevitable, certain and absolute death. Now, in addition to the reader, the world is witnessing what's going on around the X-Men, and that is happening thanks to two individuals named Neil Conan and Manoli Weatherall, who you may recognize from either the Cold Open or from X-Men 200, The Trial of Magneto, or from NPR if you're a regular listener, because they're actual real people. Conan in particular was the senior host of Talk of the Nation for something like 12 years. They were good friends of Chris Claremont's, and he wrote them into X-Men pretty consistently in a number of other comics as well. 
Now, this is especially weird in The Fall of the Mutants because they, specifically Neil Conan, are like major, major characters in this arc, which is funny to me every time, but also gets increasingly awesome as the scenes continue passing. Right. I don't know really much of anything about Neil Conan as a person beyond what I've heard on the radio and like his Wikipedia bio. But man, comics Neil Conan is great. Yeah. So, for instance, the first thing that Conan and Weatherall do in exploring the strange border between mystical Dallas and regular Dallas is find a sort of futuristic technological crashed uh, news van. Not theirs, but from some news reporters from the future, I guess? We should say at this point, I don't think we've touched on what's going on in Dallas. Dallas has become a horrible mashup state. There are things from the future, things from the past. There's Tyrannosaurus running through a Midtown Mall. Dallas is in a state of temporal and physical chaos as the adversary's tendency towards entropy takes the four. And so just as they're trying to figure out what's going on, and just as Manoli Weatherell picks up a uh, revolver that was left in the van, they're attacked by a Bigfoot with an axe, as happens. Weatherell shoots a bunch of people. Like, she's really, really good with a gun for a radio engineer, or TV engineer, I guess, because they're from NPR TV in this. Hard-hitting journalism. That's what this means. Journalism Apparently, good with a God. lot of murder. Yes. So they decide, well, we've got to check this out. This is dangerous and bizarre, but we're here right now. None of the other networks are, and the world needs to see what's going on. Plus, hell of a scoop, right? Right. You know, we were talking about Weatherall and Conan, and I feel like we would be remiss if we did not also point out that they both have really, really sweet hair. They do, and Conan has a pretty sweet beard as well. As a beard aficionado, I appreciate that. He does. It's a very, very respectable beard. So, yeah, Rachel, you were talking about the weird temporal, uh, spatial, geographic dimension stuff going on, and I actually really love Chris Claremont's narration from the beginning of the second issue of this arc. Dallas, where it's still night, reality remains what laughingly passes for normal. Within the day zone, however, everything's changed. The city that is suddenly coexists with the one that was and might yet be from the dawn of time to its end. All the ages of man and his world jumble crashed together in a haphazard agglomeration that resembles nothing so much as a set of child's building blocks tossed down randomly without rhyme or reason. Nothing makes sense, and as order, the primal fabric of reality shreds apart. Chaos takes deep root and flourishes and grows. And things are well and truly going to hell at this point. I really enjoy that the X-Men and Freedom Force, despite the tendency of any two supergroups in the same place at the same time to fight, decide to declare a truce, because this is way too nuts for either team to handle on their own. Right, they know how high the stakes are, so we get to see them teaming up across town, not only fighting together, but coming to each other's defense. Longshot and Pyro save some kids from a T-Rex in a mall. Wolverine and Super Saber save some cops from a barbarian horde. They set up a crisis center. And yeah, they have basically just dropped all of their rivalries and they are now working together. And it's cool. It's actually really nice seeing, not only seeing the X-Men get a break from being treated as the bad guys, but also seeing Freedom Force like really step up and do their jobs like this, really work toward a greater good. And I think that does show that a lot of these characters, their current roles are kind of circumstantial. I mean, yes, Freedom Force does tend to be more murdery jerks, and the X-Men do tend to be more heroic. But, you know, everyone's got a little bit of good and evil in them, and seeing, like, the murder grandpas, instead of hunting humans for sport, help carry medical supplies around and comfort the injured, it's pretty rad. Now, Manoli Weatherall is not quite convinced that the X-Men are actually on the good side. She wants to know why Freedom Force, a government agency, is working with these outlaws, and Havoc has pretty much had enough. Listen, lady, if the X-Men were the crooks everyone likes to figure us for, we wouldn't even be here. Anybody with sense would have skipped town at the first sign of trouble. 
but we've been good guys, what you media types dub superheroes from day one, risking our necks as a habit and saving the world our specialty. We've done both too often to count and paid the price. The only difference is that this time, your camera lets folks watch on TV. Well, I hope to blazes they enjoy the show. Man, I gave up grad school for this shit. Yeah, and I love this because Havoc has never been the most eloquent person. Well, your opinion of the M-Day speech years later aside. It's so bad. But he's always been a very passionate person. He's always been a very frustrated person. And I think that's what we, the readers, need to see and what the world needs to see right now. It's just like Iceman getting super frustrated a few issues ago in X-Factor and essentially saying, hey, judge mutants for our actions, not for the beliefs you have about us. And this, for me, really symbolizes a turning point in the X-Universe in terms of if not necessarily public perception of mutants, at least mutants' willingness to take their own hand in that public perception. And the spirit of cooperation even extends to Spiral, who decides that she's going to be a mensch and she's going to unstab Dazzler. Unfortunately, she can't. Yeah, there's just apparently too much chaos magic going on. Now, the X-Men find out in short order that the adversary is behind this, and the fighting goes on and just gets worse and worse, and no one's coming to help. There's something going on that's alluded to with X-Factor in New York. We're going to be talking about that a couple episodes from now. They're fighting Apocalypse in their own section of the Fall of the Mutants. And the Avengers and Fantastic Four are apparently just sort of hanging out, twiddling their thumbs and seeing which fight gets bigger before they jump in because they're dicks. Now, there are, I should point out, some Fall of the Mutants tie-ins in other books, some of which are starring characters in the Avengers. We'll probably talk about that a little bit later, but the teams themselves are just sort of sitting on their thumbs. Now, the fighting continues. It gets more and more desperate. And at some point during this, Psylocke mind scans Colossus, or I think actually also sees his sketchbook. And Psylocke, being an exchange student from Marvel UK, recognizes Roma, the guardian of the multiverse, and that she must somehow be involved. This, I think, is what kind of establishes the stakes even more so for the X-Men. Like, if things weren't already intense enough with reality falling the hell apart in Dallas, now apparently the omniversal freaking Guardian is somehow involved, in addition to the adversary, whatever he is, because the X-Men don't know much about the adversary at this point. So they're realizing they're probably not going to make it out alive, and Destiny, who's starting to come around a little bit, confirms that to Colossus. That even if Freedom Force can escape, even if Neil Conan can escape, the X-Men themselves are going to die. From the start, the epicenter of the action has been Eagle Plaza, has been Forge's building, Forge's penthouse. And the scene that's playing out in there is likewise unstuck in time, but it's a scene that we've seen before acted out holographically. It's Forge in Vietnam. Storm has gone through holograms of this event in Eagle Plaza before, during life death at first, and then when she came back to try to find Forge. And we don't really know what happened there. We do know that things went badly for Forge's group of soldiers. He was an American soldier in Vietnam. And some demons appeared, and they attacked the North Vietnamese, we think. It's been very unclear, and here's where we start to find out just what the deal was. It's clear to the X-Men and Freedom Force alike that going back in, diving into that, represents a threshold from which there's not going to be any coming back. And Mystique tries to convince the X-Men to stay behind, to let her go, to let Freedom Force go. And Wolverine refuses. Think, woman. If this is a trap, no sense in all of us being caught. Moreover, somebody's got to stay behind to protect the civilians. Your feds, Mystique. That gives you a credibility my outfit can't match. The X-Men, we're outlaws. Expendable. Nobody will care if we toss our lives away. More than a few will probably breathe a sigh of relief, and some will cheer. Wolverine, destiny sees nothing but death for you. Yup. Ours alone. Or ours and the world's. 
If we got to go either way, might as well make it mean something. And Neil Conan jumps in at this point to tell Wolverine, you know, sir, I'd like to shake your hand. I can't do Neil Conan's voice. You're going to have to take this as red. I wish Neil Conan was here to do Neil Conan's voice. Me Neil too. Conan, we, should, wanna... we should actually try to get him on at some point. That would be awesome. I would be so into that. <laughs> that would be so strange and cool. And so Wolverine turns to the X-Men and says, hey, you guys know this is a one-way trip. You guys know this is a suicide mission. And if anybody doesn't want to come, I'm not going to hold it against you, but I'm going. And of course the X-Men all go, come on, did you really actually expect they wouldn't? What interests me is that Madeline Pryor also chooses to go with them. And once again, we've seen her medal tested every scene she's appeared in pretty much since she first showed up in X-Men. She remains an incredibly brave and dedicated person, and goddamn, I love her character. And Conan goes in with them as well. He's still just broadcasting out, hoping that the signal is reaching somewhere. As it turns out, it is in fact reaching everywhere, because that's what happens when you use future newsroom technology. Yes, uh, Manoli Weatherall is helping with that on the other side of things. And so there's this great scene of everybody saying goodbye, realizing the X-Men are going to their deaths, that Freedom Force themselves will probably live. And for me, the most poignant part of that by far is Rogue and Mystique saying goodbye with that wonderful comic convention of their speech bubbles and thought bubbles, betraying their conflicted thoughts and sort of guarded words. Once they're inside, the adversary finally reveals himself. He is ready to face off against them. He has been effectively freed, and no one. No one can stop him because he's taken the two people who might have out of the equation. So the X-Men start to make their way through the Vietnam scenario that's playing out in Eagle Plaza. It's here that we first find out the true story of what actually happened, what the demons represent, and what Forge did all those years ago. Yeah, Madeline kind of stumbles away in the midst of the melee and sees a much younger Forge on his knees with his fallen comrades, nine of them to be exact, all around him, and him basically drawing their sort of spirit forms out of their bodies, opening up a gateway for demons to come through to get revenge to kill the North Vietnamese that killed his friends. And finally, he calls in an airstrike to erase the evidence. Yeah. Now, before all that happens, I do want to point out one of the scenes I really enjoy, which is as the X-Men are um, fighting the demons alongside the North Vietnamese, Rogue is thinking to herself, Don't quite sit right, saving these North Vietnamese army folks, after America fought them in a war and all. But I guess the bottom line is, we human beings gotta stick together. Rogue, you know there are, like, British people on your team too, right? Uh, you know, she only has an intelligence of four in the Marvel role-playing game. Ouch. But what this really reminds me of is actually the scene toward the end of The Rocketeer, when everybody realizes that the Nazis are involved, and so, like, the gangsters and the American feds are kind of, like, teaming up together and firing their Tommy guns oh, side by yes, side. Oh, yes, God, what's the line, um... I might not make an honest buck, but I'm 100% American. I don't work for no two-bit Nazi. I love that so much. God, Again, that, is, that is my favorite superhero movie of all time. Oh, mine too. But yeah, I mean, there's just such a great thrill of seeing the good guys and the bad guys who have been rivals up until this point having to work together. And not only that, it really sells the gravity of the situation. You know, here is a situation. Here is a villain dangerous enough that even the villains we've previously seen have to say, OK, this is more important than any kind of ideology. This is more important than us making a buck or clearing our names or whatever. We've got to work with the people we hate the most to save the goddamn world because that's where we keep our stuff. Unfortunately, they're not the ones with the power to save the world. That character is one who the adversary has already apparently taken out of the equation. That's Forge. The last we saw Forge, Storm had gone to kill him. She had apparently stabbed him in the heart immediately before discovering that he was, in fact, the good guy, and they'd gone over a cliff together. 
So imagine our surprise when we discover them living happily in a cabin on an uninhabited world. Yeah, this is a sort of other Earth. This is an Earth where civilization never happened, where humanity never happened. And it becomes clear pretty quickly, this is a world the adversary has built to replace the one he's currently in the process of destroying. And Forge is still alive. Storm figures maybe her heart wasn't really in the killing blow, which is good. So we, her we do heart know, wasn't in it, so it wasn't in his heart. Yeah, and we do know that Storm is someone who has stabbed folks straight through the heart with no compunction previously. She is not someone to mess around with in a knife fight. It's true. And yeah, this world, it's kind of idyllic. It's kind of beautiful. It's pure. There's no pollution. There's no people anywhere. They can just be themselves. It's the perfect life and maybe the perfect trap. Forge thinks that they are basically out of the game, that they should resign themselves to life on this new world, to starting anew, and to building it into something worthwhile. His theory is that the adversary actually put them on this world so that they could start a new Earth, so that even though he's destroying the main Earth, they'll basically be restarting civilization anew. Which is funny, because like, if you're a type A chaos god, who are you going to choose to repopulate the planet? The two most type A people available? I guess so. But he is a trickster god, so it's also probably part of the game. You know, he takes his two greatest foes and puts them in this position of great power. Storm is not falling for this. Storm decides that what she needs to do is get out on her own, wander around, try to work some shit out and figure out the nature of the world. She wanders, I think, for almost a year as Forge basically cannibalizes his mechanical leg to build some solar panels and to incorporate some technology into their home. Storm goes off to basically find herself, and in a way, it's kind of reminiscent of Life Death 2 going back to her roots, you know? She's in the cradle of civilization in Africa, or the cradle of what would have been civilization in a world that had any, and she calls out to the Bright Lady, the goddess that she called out to as a child when she first arrived in that part of Africa. And there's nothing. And so she starts to wonder if maybe Forge was right, if maybe they were put here by the adversary or whoever to be the life force, to be the deities, to be the human soul and spirit and seed of the beginning of a new race of mankind in this new perfect world. Well, it's dirty work, but I guess someone's got to do it. Yeah, and so she eventually comes back. In fact, she comes back after a full year of wandering. And I think that's something some people forget about this arc, is that time passes differently in this unspoiled world, and Storm and Forge come out of it a year older than when they entered. And another thing that people, I think, forget is how amazing Storm's hair becomes during her wanderings. I mean, she still has the sides of her head sort of shaved. I'm not sure how she managed that in this world without technology. But the rest of it, it's like this giant epic mane. It's this immense, like, spiky poof of epic awesomeness. And I kind of wonder, like, she's been gone for a year, right? And I know a year is a long time, but that's a lot of hair growth for a year. Wait, 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 wait. This is your sticking point? Like... In a story about people with superpowers who, in an epic fight with an ancient god, got shunted to an alternate universe where they're supposed to repopulate or at least take over as the gods of an abandoned Earth, and one of them has lost her weather powers but is about to get them back from a fancy ray gun, her hair is your narrative hang-up. Well, I mean, the rest of it makes perfect sense. Dude, she's Storm. Her hair can do whatever the hell she wants it to. That's legit. I just sort of take that as red. Awesome hair is the secondary automatic comic book superpower. Am I in a comic book? I mean, my hair's pretty great. Your hair is really great. It's all ringlets today, too, because it's super humid. Ah, yes, very nice. It's true. I'll take a picture to post in the as mentioned. So anyway, Storm returns and Forge has been busy. The sort of cave they were living in before, now there's a house that's been built with giant solar panels. And Forge, who looks noticeably more weathered and whose robotic leg, because remember he built himself a robot leg after Vietnam, is almost entirely gone. He's been cannibalizing his own cybernetic parts to make the technology that he's been working on. 
Now, the solar panels may be the most obvious, but they're not the two most significant things he's built because Forge has found a way to reverse two major, major plot points. First and foremost, he's figured out a way home. But second, and as part of that process, he's pretty sure he's found a way to bring back Storm's powers. Now, this is a big, big deal, obviously. I mean, not only has Storm been powerless for ages, not only has much of her character development since then been because of that fact, but Storm and Forge's relationship basically disintegrated when she found out that Forge was the one who built the device that depowered her in the first place. And now he's prepared, potentially, to undo that. Now, Forge's explanation for why this is possible is a fantastically daffy bit of pseudogenetics that I'm not even going to go into because it's just silly as hell. It's actually, it's very, very, very how you fly in Peter Pan because it's going to require the combination of the gun that Forge has built and Storm's basically self-confidence, Storm really wanting genuinely to access her powers. And it won't work without either component. And man, I love the scene where this happens. They're on top of Forge's new airy, which is basically this mystical mountain that he does rituals on top of. And he points out that there's only enough juice in this gun for one shot, and he doesn't know if it's going to work, and it might very well kill her. He says to Araro, Once we start, Storm, there's no turning back. We started, I think, the moment we met. And Sylvester's art, the facial nuance we see here, the body language, is beautiful. I mean, this whole scene is just pregnant with drama. It's wonderful. One of the things I love most about this as a parallel arc to the stuff going down in Dallas is how quiet and how personal it is. Because the X-Men are doing the big, epic, cinematic, fighting for the world thing. And Storm and Forge's fight is so much quieter and so much more personal. It takes place over a much longer time. And it's such a good counterpoint. It reminds me more than anything. Actually, this whole arc reminds me very, very much of X-Men 137 of the end of the Dark Phoenix saga, you know, the quiet moments with the X-Men on the ship before they go down to the moon, the actual fight, and the sense of standing up in principle, in solidarity, against a force that you know you can't beat on some level. Because to compromise the principles that led you there, to compromise your integrity as heroes, as a team, as the X-Men, is to already have lost. Absolutely. And so, really, Storm and Forge couldn't be taking this in any other direction, and Forge fires the gun, and Storm doesn't feel anything. And that's when he tells her, hey, I know you're scared, I know you're worried you're going to lose the person you've become since you lost your powers, you're going to lose all that individual progress, I know you're worried you may revert to that untouchable goddess you were before, that barely human force of nature, but you need to believe in yourself because I believe in you. And they kiss for the first time since life-death. And there's a flash of lightning. And this sounds so cheesy, but god damn if it does not work beautifully in practice. Oh, yeah. And Storm flies through the air, overjoyed, and lightning strikes the pentacle of torches that Forge has built atop his airy, and a goddamn hole opens up in the goddamn sky. Which brings us to the final conflict of at least the X-Men's chapter of The Fall of the Mutants. So, apparently, Storm and Forge, although they do make it back to the real world, the next time we see them is actually chained up with Roma, or rather merged with a column that she's merged with, in the Starlight Citadel high in the sky. The adversary's captured them, he has taken over Storm's wind powers, which she now does fully have back to build a barrier of wind around the place, and he's taunting them. He's saying that they were fools for giving up the chance to build a new world to oppose a foe they could not possibly defeat. 
Back on Earth, meanwhile, Neil Conan is fighting a very different type of battle, and that is a battle with the X-Men's absolute determination to sabotage their own public image. He's trying to convince Wolverine to talk to the camera to actually let people see. Look, you people complain about how the public views mutants, and especially the X-Men. You take some perverse pride in being outlaw, unsung heroes. Is that how you want things to stay? I don't know if my broadcasts are getting through, but if they are, this is a chance for everyone to see you live. As it happens, at your best, at your worst. Shut me off, you go back into the shadows where nothing's certain and anything can be a lie. You want to fight for your cause, then we have to do it where people can see. So basically, the media is awesome and Neil Conan is awesome, and this issue of X-Men is like the exact opposite of every media episode of Babylon 5. I have no idea what you're talking about there, but what it takes me back to is Kurt Busiek's Cyclops Should Totally Have Stayed a Journalist argument, which I buy more and more as I read more and more of what comes after that. <laughs> yup. And so the X-Men at this point, they kind of realize what's going on. They followed Psylocke's psychic trail of Roma, of her energy, to the Starlight Citadel in the sky. They see it. Uh, Rogue tries to go fly up there to check it out, gets buffeted down and slammed into the ground with wind. Oh, and this part's kind of weird. She talks about, after she lands, how nobody should touch her because her costume's just shredded and she might absorb their psyches or kill them or whatever. But it's clearly not. It's not drawn as being torn or shredded. So obviously the thing to do if you're playing along at home at this point is to claim to have taken a drink but not actually have one. Exactly. So what are the X-Men going to do? I mean, reality's clearly falling apart. The world is clearly ending Dallas first and they can't get to the one place they need to, this citadel up in the sky. They're going to fly long shot up like a goddamn kite. That's what they're going to do. So I love this story so much. It's incredibly epic. It's incredibly emotionally resonant. And this part is just silly. So the plan is Longshot has hollow bones and somehow that'll let them throw him with enough force and he'll maybe catch the wind and they'll all sort of be able to ride his. The plan doesn't actually make any sense. I mean, I cannot think of a way that this makes sense, but it does get them all up there. It works because comic books. I mean, when you have a character whose power is basically that things just work out, that he's lucky, I feel like you can kind of get away with some narrative cheats, but this one is perhaps a little bit more so than the others. Now, Longshot's luck carries through because as he's arriving at the Citadel, he throws some of his blades and they actually harm the adversary because they're made of steel, which is iron-based. And the adversary, they don't realize that that's why they're harming him. And so Wolverine goes after him with his adamantium claws. They do nothing. And the adversary is really smug at this point because he's seen what Roma has to work with. He's seen the chess pieces still on her board. And so he knows that there's no one who can stop him, except, as you may recall, there's one missing piece that he doesn't know about. There's a spanner that Roma threw into the works. There is some chaos in the order that she normally... Not only a spanner, but an organic steel spanner, a very tall, very angry organic steel Russian spanner named Pyotr Rasputin. And Colossus just dives through the freaking adversary, tearing him apart. And the adversary just can't believe that this is going on. You're not supposed to be part of this game. And that right there is the adversary's flaw, something that Roma has that he doesn't, which is the ability to mix order and chaos when necessary and to recognize that every bit of chaos has some order in it. Every bit of order has some chaos in it. He is a being of pure entropy, and he has not accounted for other variables being a part of this game. We know that the adversary is going to lose, but his final defeat is a little bit more tricky because he is a god, and he's a pretty big deal. Rogue has sucked up some of his powers and knowledge, so she is able to open a portal away, and the X-Men try to push him through, combining their wind, their light, their plasma, all of their powers, and they can't do it. 
And Storm realizes what has to happen before Forge even has to say it. The reason the adversary came through this world in the first place was because of what happened in Vietnam, was because of the portal to various demon dimensions and other places outside of space and time that he opened up when he tried to get revenge on the North Vietnamese that killed his friends. So the only thing that's going to be able to send the adversary back is a full reversal of that spell, including the sacrifice of nine more souls. As it turns out, we have eight X-Men and one Madeline Pryor. Eight X-Men and one Madeline Pryor, and they decide very quickly that it's worth it, that they're going to do this. They take a minute to say their goodbyes to one another and to the rest of the world via Neil Coden's camera. Storm and Forge look at one another. They've just finally found love again, and here it is, ending. Once more, farewell, until we meet again. Which will never be. Not necessarily. For such as we, my love, anything is possible. After all, we're comic book characters. This is really just a revolving door. You know that, right, Forge? Come on. And Madeline Pryor herself turns to the camera and talks to a man she hasn't seen in a very long time. Scotty, wherever you are, I wish you all the best. Find our son. Keep him safe. Raise him well. I love you. Goodbye. And guys, this scene right here, everything has been leading up to this. And of course we know that not all the main characters are going to die, otherwise there'd be no comic. But it doesn't matter, because they are so well written by Chris Claremont in this era. It's hard not to believe what they believe, that this is, in fact, the ultimate sacrifice. And regardless, it's hard not to be in awe of them being so willing to do so to save the world, to die one and all, for Madeline to die before she has a chance to see Scott or Nathan Christopher again, for Forge and Storm to die before they have a chance to finally be happy. This is it, and it's really hard not to believe everything the X-Men are telling each other. I think, instead of trying to describe what happens next, that maybe we should defer to Neil Conan's voiceover from the sequence as it's broadcast. Forge starts chanting, and somehow his words, the very sounds themselves, take on a palpable physical force. He gestures, and the X-Men transform into beings of pure energy. Then Forge gathers them into a single mass, like a miniature star, too bright to look at. Yet he gazes into its heart with wide-open eyes. I'm crying, Manoli, so is he. As his voice grows impossibly louder than the adversary's laughter, mocking, triumphant, what's so funny, it's almost as though he's about to win. Until finally, with a fierce war cry, the star is thrown. And just like that, it's over. And that's the end of the X-Men. Forever. End of podcast, you guys. No, but the adversary is sealed away. And Forge himself just looks at this sort of tablet that's now floating in the air that represents the seal of the adversary in another dimension as he stands next to Roma, who has now appeared next to Neil Conan, and says, The scales are balanced. The ghosts are gone. The spirits of my friends finally free to rest in peace. But I tell you, Roma, the price now, as then, isn't worth the victory. And across the world, we see the X-Men's friends and teammates and families reacting to the news of their death you know, at the safety of Earth at this incredibly high cost. The X-Men themselves awaken far away in Roma's Citadel. Yeah, they're alive, they're whole, and she says, so you did save the world, but I feel like I kind of owed this to you. You have a decision to make. I could bring you back right where you were, or I could take you anywhere, anywhen, any other dimension. You basically have a boon from the Guardian of the Omniverse. What do you want? I want a pony. 
And so they get a pony. It's great. It's a really cute pony. No, no. What they decide. Now, the X-Men leading into this have been talking about something called Plan Omega, which, as you may recall, is not the Plan Omega that involved blowing up the Earth to defeat the Phoenix Force, but did involve, in this case, faking their own deaths to take themselves and their loved ones out of danger. And they decide, well, you know, this is basically Plan Omega. Let's go through with it. Let's stay officially dead and operate clandestinely. And so what Roma does... In addition to taking them far, far away to, as it turns out, Australia, which is great, she makes them invisible to any sort of video cameras, to any kind of recording equipment. Essentially, they're ghosts. They're not going to be found again. Then you were agreed. And that is for the best. I salute you, X-Men. Magnificent though you were as heroes, all a person might wish to be, now you can do much more. Because you have become legends. And Chris Claremont's ability, along with Mark Silvestri, to sell something that could be completely cheesy as incredibly meaningful and heartwarming and beautiful. I mean, goddamn, there's a reason that Chris Claremont himself is a legend. And I think this arc demonstrates that beautifully. You mean, aside from the time he sacrificed his life force to save the universe and Dallas and was brought back by Roma? Well, I mean, aside from that, yeah. So, yeah, that is the Uncanny X-Men's chapter of Fall of the Mutants. And it is a weird story. Some strange things happen from NPR to Native American trickster gods that just sort of show up in this era of X-Men, but I love it. For me, this is the best that the mid to late 80s had to offer until we get to Inferno, at least. You know, the story we just talked about is weird, but here's the thing. It's not the original story of the fall of the mutants. Claremont originally had a very, very different plan. It was structured fairly similarly, but according to Phil Hall, an editor from Marvel UK, the role of the adversary was actually originally slated to be played by Jim Jaspers. Now, James Jaspers was a character from Captain Britain. He was responsible for this thing called the Jaspers Warp that pretty much undid reality. Sound familiar? Those of you who haven't been following Marvel UK but had been following American X-Men or this podcast might recognize him from, among other places, Uncanny X-Men number 200, where he prosecuted Magneto. As he also did in the X-Men vs. Avengers miniseries. Yeah, he also tried to brain someone with a rock. Jim Jaspers is a dick. He totally is. But essentially, Claremont had been setting up these seeds to bring in James Jaspers and the Jaspers Warp, and this creature called the Fury, who's sort of this being who's engineered to kill superheroes and incorporate them into the American Marvel Universe, the non-Captain Britain stuff, basically. Now, unbeknownst to Chris Claremont, Alan Moore at the time was in the middle of a falling out with Marvel UK, and when Claremont became aware of this, all of the seeds he'd set up for this to happen, he just sort of abandoned, because that would not have gone well, there might have been a legal battle. But I read a little bit about what would have happened. Specifically, the Fury would have shown up to merge with Nimrod to become the entity that itself would have done the entire mutant massacre. The Marauders and Mr. Sinister would not have been involved. Whoa. Man, that's a shift with a lot of ripples. Yeah. And James Jaspers would get more and more political power until eventually the UN would sort of declare a resolution against mutants. It would officially recognize them as dangerous. As this was going on, both good and evil mutants would show up at the Xavier School. In the meantime, Kitty and Colossus and Longshot and Nightcrawler would be stuck on Muir Island. And with Kitty over there, and with Rachel Summers out of the picture ever since the confusing stuff that happened a number of years ago... There's no one to go, oh hey, we're headed on a fast track to Earth 811. To Days of Future Past. Now, the conflict would have resolved in a similar way. I mean, essentially, the adversary would have been replaced with James Jaspers as this all-powerful being... But instead of disappearing and becoming believed dead by the world, the X-Men would have been mutated by the Jasper's Warp into these strange warped versions of themselves, just like happened with the Warpies in the original Jasper's Warp, and we'll get to more of that next caliber. So, it would have been a very different X-Men universe in a lot of ways, and I don't know whether it would have been a better one or a worse one, but I think it would have been interesting as hell. 
Meanwhile, you've got questions. David asks over on our blog, do all, most, or many mutants require a specific source to recharge their powers? For those that don't, is it just basic metabolism? If Angel had us a long day of dodging things, can he get in a Mondo cheat meal without regretting it later? If Dazzler becomes deaf, would she effectively lose her powers? So it varies a whole lot, and not just from character to character, but even from era to era. So Cyclops' powers were originally very definitely solar charged. He would have to absorb sunlight for his optic blasts to work. And later that conceit was sort of quietly, for the most part, written out and replaced with a kind of goofier explanation. Dimension of pure force, y'all. That was only in one official guide to the Marvel Universe, to be fair. But it haunts us to this day. It does indeed. Some characters are consistent, so like Sunspot has always had to absorb solar energy and will eventually run out if he uses his powers at night too much, for instance. And of course, Dazzler has always needed sound to transmute into her light powers. There really don't seem to be too many mutants, though, that require a specific way to recharge. Most of them, their powers are just sort of inherent to who they are, and are only limited by them getting tired or burned out by using them or being exerted in general a whole lot. Regarding Dazzler specifically, now we may be mistaken about this. She is not a character who's sort of at the center of our knowledge base, so if you have counterexamples, please let us know. But we are under the impression that her powers are charged by sound, not her perception of sound. So basically, they would presumably still work if she were deaf. So Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is a totally listener-supported podcast. And one of the things that listeners who support us at a certain level can get is thanks and a variety of fictional character or concept voices. So let's turn it over to the angry Claremontian narrator. Your ultimate sacrifice has saved the world, Donnie Mason. Now reap your rewards and prepare to begin a new life as Chris Carfore. In Australia, presumably. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much more. Our show is totally listener-supported and is ad-free, and that's made possible by our generous Patreon supporters. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, the new mutant's luck finally runs out. We lose a friend. As we go into the second chapter of our coverage of the fall of the mutants. We'll get through this together, my friends. Mm-hmm.